0: they were talking to uh tim curry actually auditioned for that but they were like i don't know this is too it's too scary because i can't i can't even imagine remember me eddie when i killed your brother welcome to the crooked table podcast where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle and now your host robert yanis jr (laughs) <laughs> Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about a movie, usually of their choice, something they grew up with, something that's personal, personally connected to them. Um, so normally we have a revolving door of guests that uh, I host the show and kind of, I guess, get their personal story regarding whatever the, the selected film is. But this episode... It's almost my birthday, and my birthday gift to myself is to talk about a movie that I get to choose. <laughs> so um, this episode, as my kind of uh, sounding board, basically, and, and someone who will shed a little more light on my relationship to this specific film, uh, welcoming me back to the Crooked Table podcast, Janine Yannis, my mom. Welcome back.
1: Thank you. Nice to be back.
0: So you're still nervous, even though you did this before? Yes. <laughs> but you don't even, like, this isn't even a movie that you, that it's your choice. This is a, a, a Rob choice, I guess, basically. So so the pressure should be off of you for the most part, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, but I still get nervous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you also rewatched this film um, in anticipation of this episode, so that helps a little bit too, Yeah. refresh your memory. So normally I will do the whole this is the t- this is the point of the show where I'm like, "Oh, so tell people who you are. You're my mom, people know that. You don't have like you're not writing for a movie site or anything like that. You're just like, I don't have to promote anything. I'm just I'm coming on here cuz cuz Rob called and was like, "Come in here, and talk movies with me." And you're like, "Okay. I'll come over." <laughs> That's right. Pretty much. It's nice to have that that option. Uh-huh. And I mean, you know, I could have easily had Kai on on this episode. She lives in the she's in the next room right now. So uh, but it was actually Kai's idea that I bring you on, because the this film is one of like, probably one of the old one of my oldest favorite films I guess at this point. Um, so and rather than go through the who are you and how we know each other you I, you gave birth to me that's how we know each other. Uh, <laughs> let's just we'll just say that what we're going to talk about is uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. So we'll just go ahead now and listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. This is the tale of an up and coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down out private detective named Eddie Valiant. Ooga Booga. Every moment
1: they were together was a new adventure in trouble. Hi, me, Eddie. It's a motion picture about oh, friendship. Eddie, take it easy, Get out. Get out. Please, Eddie, don't tell me I'm making a big mistake. Love. Compassion. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I yanked your ears. All the time you yanked my ears. Murder. Marvin Acme. The rabbit cacked him last night. Remember, you never saw me. Sex. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. And Ah! <laughs> Tunes gets them every time.
0: You wouldn't have any idea where the rabbit might be. Yeah, Got a thing for
1: rabbits, huh? The whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. It's a comedy a little different <laughs> from all the rest. Ah! I'm a pig! I'm a tomb! I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Well, <laughs> but tell me, Eddie. Is that a rabbit in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? Touchstone
0: Pictures and Steven Spielberg present a Robert Zemeckis film. We
1: do as a act idiotic, but we're not stupid. Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
0: That was a little bit of the trailer for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, directed by Robert Zemeckis, uh, the 1988 film from him. So why did I pick this? I, I, this film is so formative for me in, in several different ways. Uh, probably one, one of the most notably being that my oldest toy that I still have in my possession, you know, a lot of my, cause you know, I had like the, you know, stuff, the, the, the clown and like the little tiger that I think used to be dad's or yours or, so, or you guys got me when I was an infant. Yeah. Like there's a few other ones that you have for nostalgic purposes but this is one that you're like are you gonna keep that i'm like hell yeah i'm taking that with me so i have sitting right next to me and i'll obviously take i'll take a picture and post it on instagram before i post this episode uh a frightening looking (laughs) plush uh roger rabbit doll that came out when the film was was released initially and um his eyes are faded his hair is all nappy and he's like basically disgusting looking like if I if it wasn't mine I'd, I would use like a pair of like
1: but he's not ripped my, <laughs> he's not ripped no he's not ripped he's, his
0: arm's all jacked up because yeah. I would well because that's the thing like to get obviously this is gonna we're gonna get really personal the whole time with me and this movie like this was my my buddy growing up. Like this was the one I this was the toy that I slept with as a little kid. This is the one that I like had a whole him and and Red from Fraggle Rock were a couple in my toys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they had little <laughs> they had little kids that were other stuffed animals that I had. So it's like uh, I don't I don't know if that's maybe me as a kid being like it's gonna be cool one day to have a a, a wife and have kids and maybe that was Robert, Roger Robert was kind of my cipher in that way. I don't know. But I used to pretend that he would talk to me. He used to get into fights. That's how his arm is all jacked up. I think I slammed it in the closet several times or something. And and you remember this? <laughs> I do remember. His mouth that. is broken, and it's like and part of it is just the ravages of time, and part of it is just you know me just playing rough with it because I was you know a, a little boy, and we have a tendency sometimes to roughhouse with our toys. Yet remarkably, most of the the action figures that I have, the old school with the rubber band across the two legs. Broke because of Freddy broke them, not because I broke them. Uh, But so, yeah, so I have the plush toy of Roger Rabbit that is still, like, my probably my most cherished toy at this point. So you would remember this more than me, before we get into the movie itself. What is the origin of this toy? When did I get it? And I guess, did we see this movie in theaters? Because I don't remember that part of it.
1: We saw this movie, it was uh, Nana, uh, Daddy, and me and we took you to see this movie and then after the movie we went to a store and you wanted this Roger rabbit doll more than anything in the world but your father was getting upset because you were throwing a hissy fit and you were throwing yourself on the ground and you were really getting sounds like what, what sounds like me as a dad now with with Kai and I's yeah. daughter so he said no you're not getting it well after you calmed down, and we were still in the parking lot of the store, uh, he actually did let Nana go inside and go buy this toy for you. And when you when you got that toy, when she gave it to you, it was like the best gift in the world. And you've loved it ever since.
0: <laughs> and now I'm so, in my mid-30s, so I don't yeah. really like sleep with it anymore. <laughs> no. But I, I still keep it. It's in like very... Like, in order to get it for this episode, it was in, like, the office closet, but on top of a box. Like, not even in a box of stuff. It was its own spot in yeah. my, in the closet, so yeah. it could easily accessible, just because I like having... I like to know where it is and that kind of thing, because it, I do have such a, you know, nostalgic uh, yeah. thing for it, more than anything else. More than, more than any other toys that I grew up with. Um, so, actually, I didn't even realize until soon when we were planning this episode, because I wanted it to be... Um, because I wanted to do the Rob's choice for the for the birthday for my birthday, and I knew it was between this and a couple other movies that I really love, Unbreakable and The Forty Year Old Virgin. So I'll probably get to those next year, maybe on my birthday or something. Um, but in a way, I think this was the best choice because I had this is one of my most personal movies, and uh, I didn't realize that this actually came out on June twenty fourth, uh, nineteen eighty eight. So six days before my fifth birthday. So did was this my birthday movie when I was five? Basically, yeah sounds like it yeah that's crazy because i didn't even know that i had no idea when this movie came out it's and and aladdin was one of my birthday movies and it's one of my favorite disney films and it's funny how you know so many of the films that i hold really near and dear to my heart are because they i saw them on my birthday so it was like already in, in a special context actually on my actual birthday i i got a used copy of wild wild west the will smith movie which is not good uh on dvd and i think i'm going to make Kai watched that on my birthday night because it's my birthday <laughs> This is our birthday so we get like a birthday choice that it doesn't count in our normal because normally we just cycle back and forth between who picks the movie that we watch yeah. so I think I'm going to at night after we put uh, put our daughter down I think we're going to watch that and I can gauge her reaction because I know she's not not really looking forward to seeing that <laughs> and it'll be the 20th anniversary of that movie which came out in June 30th which was my birthday movie when I in 1999 oh, so it's yeah. like there's, I kind of want to go back through the box office charts and be like, "What was my birthday movie every year?" Because I remember Mulan was one year. I think Speed Two was one year. I think Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, and I was like, "Oh man, bad choice." <laughs> um, like certain ones. Like I want to go through and, and figure out which one it is uh, for all of those, just because that's that's always a fun thing that we do in our family is birthday movies a lot yeah. of the time. So, okay, so yeah, so I guess we did see it in theaters. And did I? Did I? Was I obsessed with it like right out of the gate? Immediately was oh, obviously yeah. the toy I was, yeah. But was I like, in, into once the movie? you got
1: the toy, everything was about the movie. Um, you know, the I still part, have
0: probably some of the little like the bend- bendable
1: toys, the yeah. little like rubber, like Eddie Valiant and such, yeah. The part when he goes, uh, no pain, no pain, he's hitting the, the dishes. dishes on his head, no pain. Um, you would do that, oh, and boy. then you would do that thing with Eddie Valiant when he, when he, at the end, when he's like, they think he's upset, all the cartoon characters, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he grabs. Uh, Roger Rabbit question? and he kisses them. You would do that. <laughs> that's probably how I broke
0: his mouth. I, you know, probably. Like, Roger and I had some hardcore makeout session <laughs> a million years ago. Um, uh, that's funny.
1: So, another thing I thought about was we, were, we were, uh, at the end when Jessica Rabbit says, come on, I'll, I'll go, I'll go home and cake. make you a carrot cake. And I'm thinking, that's your favorite cake. Oh, maybe that's so funny. Maybe that's
0: part of why I was looking at it,
1: and I said, "Oh my god!" Five-year-old
0: Rob didn't recognize that that was also kind of a sexual innuendo. (laughs) It's like carrot cake. I I need carrot cake to get to a woman like that. And let's just get that out of the way. That was a Jessica Rabbit was a huge like sexual awakening for me as a little kid. Being like, hey. what's going on there this is this is kind of interesting you know Uh, and I think that was like that was no joke watching maybe five but maybe like seven or eight or something watching this movie and ha- having seen it a million times that was one of the first instances that I remember where I was like oh I, women are, are really attractive and I'm, I'm into that um, and obviously that's the idea run right? with Jessica Rabbit she's so voluptuous and, and the fact that actually her her design is so anatomically impossible uh, <laughs> to the fact that she would fall right over because she's so busty and they even animated her I was even I was reading the some of the IMD, IMDB trivia on this a little bit in preparation for this episode that they actually animated her her breasts bouncing in the opposite way. Like they bounce up instead of down to make it feel like totally unnatural and cartoonish in that right, way. Right. So um, yeah, so Jessica Rabbit was a huge thing for me too in, in a different respect. Um, but yeah, yeah. So this movie, obviously, for people that haven't seen it, is set in Hollywood in 1947. And it really set the set the bar for these live action animated hybrids. I mean, we'd seen up to this point things like uh, what is it, Gene Kelly and, like, Jerry the Mouse dancing around and things like that, but never with this level of... What, the, what sets this movie apart is the the interaction. Like, if you look at any of the behind-the-scenes featurettes or anything like that, they're, they're all... The, the weasels come into Eddie's place, and they're carrying real guns. They're not cartoon guns. They're splashing the water. Like, there's, there's even a scene where uh, Eddie Valiant grabs uh, Eddie Valiant brilliantly played by Bob Hoskins RIP who who grabs Roger and like pulls him into the back room and his head hits the lamp and the lamp is kind of swinging mm. and it's, it's little touches like that 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 actually kind of coined a phrase bump the lamp is, like kind of taking animation that much to that extra step to make it feel real
1: yeah
0: um little things like that with the way that they interact with things even like little tiny things that they don't need to have in there they they made the extra effort to make to make the feel like the animated characters and the human characters are sharing the same space. I mean, I'm thinking also in the bar, he's like looking through the peephole with his like, you know, eyes gouging out because he's, you know, cartoon character and he knocks over like the salt shaker and things like that, like all that stuff, right? touching the the chair in in, uh, the Eddie's brother's chair that's been all dusty for like however many years and leaving his fingerprints on it all yeah. that stuff like it still blows me away and this is 30 something year old movie i know uh how did how did that feel for you seeing it as i mean and i was a kid so i was like this is so cool but i didn't appreciate the technology how was that for you as an adult seeing this movie? You're like holy crap this is no. how are they pulling this off
1: I, i've never seen anything like this and the, the most amazing thing before that was mary poppins with dick van dyke dancing with the uh Penguins? With the penguins, but this was like, I was like, I couldn't believe how they incorporated animation with uh, humans so uniquely. That was beautiful the way they did it. That was really, really a great movie. I, I mean, and then when once we did get it on video, you wanted to see it all the time, and I had no problem with that because I used to sit there and watch it with you every single time. That was one
0: of the few that we had bought on VHS where the, the box actually like fell apart at a certain point. Yeah. And I remember, I think uh, we we cut it and put it into one of those clamshell like we had an extra Disney Disney the old school yeah, Disney yeah, clamshell yeah, yeah. style, yeah. and I think we just kind of slipped it in there, We're like all right, there you go, make we made it a new case. <laughs> Um, And I think as a kid, I was always kind of I was always wondering why it wasn't in that clamshell case anyway. And that's because this was a touchstone movie, technically not really Disney, not Walt Disney animation. It was a different thing. Like watching it now, there's a lot of reasons why I feel like this movie probably wouldn't be made today. And one of it is one of them, for, for example, is that it's a touchstone movie and it has the Disney and the Warner Brothers characters together sharing screen time to the point where Warner Brothers was very strict about. All right. You want bugs? You want Daffy? They need to be in it just as much as the other character the Disney character in the scene so that's why every shot where Bugs Bunny is in it, but Mickey Mouse is in the exact same shot they don't cut to one or the other like they don't mm-hmm. you know what I mean right same thing with Daffy and Donald Duck the same sequence the almost exact same amount of screen right. time uh so for that reason like getting those two studios to to work together also this movie is rated PG and it's kind of hardcore. I mean, I would, I love this movie as much as, you know, obviously because we're talking about it for this episode, but I would not show my daughter this for a while, no, like I, until I, I she's was, maybe seven, eight or something.
1: I was thinking that too. Ten, I I, don't says, know. I can't believe that I let you see this when you were five because looking at it. I went, oh my God, this is, it, it's just not, there were so many scenes like with the baby.
0: Yeah. The baby smoking a cigar, slapping people, person yeah. like talking about broads. Um,
1: talking about personal
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know his, his, his dinky yeah <laughs> and, and then uh, all the innuendo with Jessica where the I mean it's a gag later on when they're doing patty cake and when he sees the pictures Roger's looking yeah. at the pictures and it's obviously just pat, playing patty cake right. but when you hear them patty cake patty cake it sounds yeah. like he's like yeah. taking pictures of them having sex right? and Eddie's like what the hell and like, but you don't know what he's reacting to right. in that moment but in that moment you're like whoa what the hell this is a kids movie <laughs> Um, and then all the stuff I mean we're jumping all over the, plot, the place spoiler wise uh, it's, you know, plot wise but then all the stuff with Judge Doom and uh, uh, and his, his red eyes and like first of all you don't know he's a cartoon character and he gets flattened which is like something out of a Friday the 13th movie or right. Final Destination or something that's horrific in and of itself and then all the stuff when he's like scary tune guy that's really like watching it now like this is some scary shit
1: yeah, I mean the the eyes bugging out and then he's uh with the with the rubber mask on and stuff and then the high pitched voice. You remember and... me, Eddie? Oh my god. And oh I hadn't seen it in a while, so when I saw it recently I went Oh my god, this is pretty scary. Yeah. This would terrifying. And his eyes <laughs> are like
0: the the uh, the red like spiral thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is the classic like if you watch the old Disney movies like yeah. Cruella DeVille driving the car to try and hit the dogs or whatever. Uh-huh. Like they have that that kind yeah. of uh, that kind of spiral eye thing, which yeah. is which is a nice touch. Uh, I, yeah. This, and Christopher Lloyd is genius in, in so many things, uh, but but really terrifying here. So there's a lot of things in this film. A lot of sexual jokes. A lot of kind of extreme violence. Oh, she, um, the, uh, Dolores says to Eddie when he walks in the bar, like, is that a rabbit in your pants? Are you just happy to see me? Uh, he's like he's in his, uh, boxers yeah. with Jessica and she's like dabbling in watercolors, which is like, <laughs> I'm like, Oh my God, this is really like hard. This is like really kind of graphic, sexual yeah. graphic, but like, cause it's subtle at a yeah. five year old. I didn't get it at the time, but watching it now, I'm like, this is a really dirty movie. Like this is yeah. not a kid's movie. I
1: know. I know. And,
0: um. I guess so yeah so I guess did you even rec- did you pick up on a lot of those the first time or not no, really over the years No no
1: I just said, it didn't even dawn on me that this was a, but looking at it now I went oh I would never <laughs> let my granddaughter see this ever until maybe 8 or 9 years old Yeah
0: I think that's right because you know it, it is a lot more risque than I think you people. She recognize. would definitely get scared. Yeah, I get scared still.
1: Oh, the part
0: when some you, of you it. know
1: when he opens the car and he's got the dip? In, yeah. In, in like a, a tub and he takes the, the shoe, shoe, which reminded me what, 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 of a wimpering. puppy. Yeah. And he puts it in there. He's whimpering
0: was, like a puppy, yeah.
1: Oh, that was just and you know what? I it, I got very upset at that part.
0: I know. It's it's really it's really um, it's really graphic in a way. It's I mean you know, it's not like graphic like some horror movies are, but like for a movie that's ostensibly for kids where it deals with cartoons and everything, uh, yeah. And then the ink that it's left on his hands is is the red ink yeah. from the shoe, so it has that sort of that image of being like blood, like a yeah. bloody glove. Yeah, and he squeaks it together. And, oh, it's, it's it's great. The sound design and everything. In this movie is, is amazing, and the fact that the fact that it it, it is. I guess kind of made for kids, like older kids, maybe seven, eight, like around there, maybe that's the earliest I would show this to people. Um, But it was also at a different time too. It was at a different time. Like if you look at a lot of kids movies that, that, you know, that I grew up with that, that were made in the eighties, kids movies then are a lot more uh, intense than kids movies. Now kids movies. Now you think of like the trolls movie or whatever Mm -hmm. kids movies. Then it's never ending story, which is really upsetting when the, the horse drowns, like, the the uh, the the um, quicksand of the infinite of the sadness or whatever I forget the exact word and Ar- and Artax is like drowning in that movie in the in the quicksand because he's like overcome and you can't get him out of there or yeah. like uh, um, Land Before Time or any of those movies like. That deal with with parents dying or like they deal with death really hard or Return to Oz, which is most one of the most infamous ones. Yeah, which Kai and I watch a lot of times now on around Halloween because it's still we consider it a horror movie and there's a character with a pumpkin head in it anyway. Yeah. but like those uh, those Wheelers and the hallway with the heads. Like I've talked to people on this podcast and stuff before about the hallway with the heads, and, and they're like, oh my god, yeah, that's scary. <laughs> like grown ups, not like kids. <laughs> Because we all grew up with that in the whole, you know, uh, Princess Moby and the in uh, all the heads going, Dorothy Girl, like it freaks me out now. So this was a different time for kids yeah. movies. So but but it works on that level for adults, it works for older kids, a sort of risque family entertainment, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also it kinda it's also an ode an ode to that specific golden age of Hollywood and a tribute to those old cartoons, because it's, like I said, it's set in 1947, and all the Disney characters that appear in the film, because I checked on this, are in films that would have been released by 1947, and a lot of the character designs are kind of era-specific. So the most recent one that they get in there, I think, is Dumbo, which came out like 1945-46. And even he is specifically called out in the movie, because in the timeline of the movie... That's he's like more rest, more or less a, a newer star,
1: right?
0: Like oh, I have him alone loan from Disney. R.K. Maroon says early yeah. on in the movie. Yeah. So and then there's the characters from Fantasia, but there's nothing with Peter Pan or, or no- Hundred A Dalmatians because all those films hadn't come out yet. So it's basically it's kind of serving as a time capsule of what, where animation was at that at that time that the film was set, which I think is another genius move because then you have a lot of these character uh, actors, voice actors doing. The characters that they did decades before, where they had the original voice of Betty Boop in this movie doing Betty Boop yeah. uh, for that one cameo scene, and they mentioned, "Oh, you know, I'm working at the Ink and Paint Club because it works really dried up since cartoons go to went to color and things right. like that." They're, they're, right. All that stuff. I, I love all of that, and um, it, it it's also it's the kind of film that has inspired so many imitators. As far as bringing fictional characters or creatures into our world, you see it in something most, obvi- most, most obviously something like Cool World, which is again tr- uh, trying to be risque, but I don't think really kind of holds together as a story. Yeah. It seems like it's it's just trying to be Roger Rabbit, but like heavier and darker and more obviously adult because literally a human and a cartoon character have sex in that movie. is yeah. kind of part of the plot. Um, but even things like Space Jam. Or uh, Detective Pikachu, which just came out this summer, mm-hmm. where you're taking, car- you're taking what used to be cartoon characters and you're bringing them into our world and you're showing them, like, coexisting. And, and you know, um, it, in Detective Pikachu, it's the whole idea is that it's set in a city where humans and Pokemon live together. So they, like, you know, people have a Pokemon that's sort of their, their Pokemon, that's like their pet slash partner uh-huh. in things. Right. And... Um, you know, so you see Pokemon like working at like hot dog stands and like, you know, delivering whatever. And and it's like there's a city where they all work together. It's just like they're all in peace. They don't fight battles or anything uh, like which is normally what Pokemon do. Uh, and, and I haven't really seen I still haven't seen a film like tackled that that kind of approach in as successfully as this movie does. Thoughts on that?
1: Bob, Bob Hoskins did a great job great job in this movie and he i think really, he's
0: a big yeah. part of why yeah. yeah he's a big part of why uh, that happens um because he is you know he's british or, or i think i don't forget if he's english or scottish or whatever but he's i'll look that up in a second but he's very much a british man or was very much a british man and that was also one of those turning points for me where i didn't even really realize until much later that yeah he's saying he was english that uh how how, like, the depth of performance that people go. Like, I I, you know, I'm watching these movies as a kid. I'm like, yeah, I know this isn't real. I know I like to pretend that Toontown exists. That's why I wanted the plush toy of Roger Rabbit. Um, But I understood that this was pretend and all that. But I didn't know that, you know, actors use different accents, that they're not anything like that person. Like, I didn't know he wasn't American until much later in life when I think we saw something like Michael and he shows up in there. I was like, wait a minute, what the hell? (laughs) Why does Eddie Valiant have an accent? He's, he sounds like he's from London. Um, you know what I mean? So, yeah. I, I as a kid, I didn't, you know, I didn't really get that at that point. And that, it, it, you know, I saw him in something like Super Mario Brothers, where again, he has is using an American accent. He's not using yeah. his native English accent.
1: But the way he was acting, I and mean, you realize all his co-stars were cartoons. Yes. So, <laughs> I mean, that was. That's why I think he did an amazing job. The way he was. I mean, she's not talking to anything. And they probably telling them, okay, look down and do this. and
0: Well, you have to, um, yeah, because you have to have that line of sight. You have yeah. to be looking at Roger in the eyes, which they had like a, um, a lot of times like, uh, you know, a, a stand-in, like a, a, a mannequin or whatever yeah. of Roger. And then they had Charles Fleischer, who did the voice of Roger Rabbit, right. off to the side in the full outfit doing the please and all that stuff. Um, but obviously he wouldn't have been the same size if Roger Rabbit is supposed to be like three right. feet tall or whatever. So Bob Hoskins would have to make eye contact with him, turn to like get something, and then turn around and get that same eye line right back, so that when they insert him later, they don't have that issue. I actually right. think at one point there was only like a very few instances where it was slightly off, and there's a scene in. Um, I think it's in the in the the in the, the room in the back of the bar or wherever where he he looked up too high or something so they actually just had Robert Ro, Robert, Robert 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 Rabbit uh, they had Roger Rabbit kind of lean back on, on his tippy on his tiptoes to kind of meet uh-huh. that eye line but they, they they found a lot of creative ways around problems yeah. like that yeah and the fact that he he's able to bring that intensity and make it feel real is the is the entire linchpin for why this this work film works or doesn't it's basically a uh, a two-hander between him and Roger. It's basically, they're the two lead characters. Right. Uh, so if, if that relationship, if you don't buy that, the rest of the whole movie falls apart. Mm-hmm.
1: Right.
0: No, so I, I really, yeah, I really loved that. And uh, the fact that the movie starts out with, literally with a Roger Rabbit cartoon and then breaks into uh, into the car- cartoon logic from there where we see him on set in the middle of a short. I, I really I really like all that. And it's, you know, what did you think about the ways that they integrated and they imagined what tunes in our world would would be like because uh, just the dynamic. Not only is, is not only are they not only were we existing in the same space with them, they have their own area of town, which makes sense because you know now in you know in New York it's in L. A. or wherever you have like Chinatown, Little Italy, like people from certain backgrounds or whatever tend to Toontown. congregate in certain yeah. areas. So, town, Toontown is its own thing, um, and then they they create a whole history with. How the tunes fit into this this universe. There's the casting. There's like the literally the cattle call where all the cows are, are lined yeah, up yeah. at the yeah. casting for yeah. for our our uh, um, Cameroon uh, Maroon Studios there and and um, we meet Marvin Acme who in all the Looney Tunes cartoons all those things are like Acme anvils and all this like they reference a lot of things that are pre-existing in cartoon world mm-hmm. and uh, you know even Eddie himself has a personal history having. His uh, him and his brother really concentrate on tunes were like their their main customer base. I right, so right. well, how do you feel about the way that they they integrated at that and how uh, it makes it that feel that much realer?
1: I know real? it, it was wonderful the way they did it. It just like they they coexisted, you know. Yeah. And that that was wonderful the way they did that. And you could put that into so many perspectives of life, but. I, I just love the way they coexist.
0: And there's even sort of the Ink and Paint Club, which I already mentioned, is kind of almost like uh, segregated. Like a lot of times at, the, at that era, there would be, you know, black only clubs or whatever, whites and, only right. and that kind of thing. So it's like tunes or like that's a club where tunes perform for humans. Only humans are, are like the customers. So it's right. an interesting. It, they, try, they find a lot of real world analogs for how the tunes would believably fit into this world if yeah. they were real. Yeah. And then they add, and then the addition of uh, the dip as, you know, adding stakes, because otherwise, if you can't kill tunes, then, all right, what is the, what, are, what is Roger Rabbit afraid of? You know, you need something like that to kind of bridge that gap. Yeah. And, and, I, and I love the fact that, uh, you know, that they, they make, they take the time to, to make it, to really delve deep into how, how that would all function how the system would sort of work or not work for toons and the, 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 the fact that they're kind of they're viewed as entertainers but they're also kind of viewed as second-class citizens in a way like you said judge doom walks right up grabs one of those cartoon shoes and just kills them like to prove a point basically right uh and and it's you know they're kind of preyed upon in this movie with the the toontown being kind of their only haven which is why marvin acme's will that it's, spoilers, found at the end with the disappearing, reappearing ink is so key because it, it basically, it kind of de, uh, declares Toontown a historical landmark, basically, that can't ever be touched and owns, and it's is owned by the Toons themselves.
1: Right, right. And all the colors in the, uh, when um, Judge Doom is there and everything is very, like, dim and gray and except for the, uh, his cohorts, you know, um, the, but weasels, then, the weasels. The weasels we're talking about, yeah. And then when, when they mm. knock the wall down, everything becomes bright and pretty colors. And once he's dead, you know what I mean. And yeah, um, it, it was just, I don't know it was just beautiful. That the and the, the end of the movie is just very touching. I I could see what you meant when well, you yeah, told I, me that. Yeah, I, 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 I got touched with that too. I my eyes filled up too because I. I don't know, it was like... i it was a happy ending, which I always like happy right. ending. so that was... Well, but
0: it's also... It works on, on a lot of... Well, it works on a lot of different levels. And again, we're jumping all over the place. We're not really... This is not a structured conversation. We're just all over the place. Um, but it's, um, it's the kind of thing that works uh, as a happy ending because the bad guy is taken down, the tunes are safe, and then there's also a certain level of of hope and, like, optimism that is inherent in those characters mm-hmm. and seeing all those characters unite. I mean, it's basically, like, the Avengers of cartoon characters in this movie. It's Mickey right. Mouse, Bugs Bunny, Pinocchio, Betty Boop, and, like, Droopy shows up. Like, there's a lot of, like, different kinds of characters in here. I always wondered why Hanna-Barbera wasn't really on there, but now I'm realizing maybe it's because part of it wouldn't have made sense because this is 1947 the flintstones and stuff weren't until the 60s oh that's right i'm starting to think of that that's right but all these characters existed before this i think mickey mouse was like 1930 something black and white and bugs bunny was like 1940 like a few years before 1947 so they were all out there doing their thing at this point but then there's also the personal story with eddie and his brother who got killed by the tune and then it it gets tied tied into this case plus just me watching it you know, having my own child now, watching that as a f- five-year-old or almost five-year-old at that point, it's uh, it's a weird sense of nostalgia. Like I said, that there's there are a few movies that I have this much of a connection to. I can't really think of a movie older than this that I had that that I saw when it came out that I had that same kind of mm-hmm. visceral reaction to. Where I just yeah, I wasn't even because I was like super moved necessarily by the movie. It was just like I don't know. It was the the smile, Darnya smile song, yeah. and all that stuff, everything, just like I was like, oh yeah. my god, it still works. It's, so, <laughs> it's like a perfect movie, and it, and it hits me in that certain way that like, you know, Thriller still would scare me, even because I remember being a little kid, and like hiding under the chair because I was freaked out by Thriller, right. which you know I was like a toddler when that. Yeah. I was like, well, no, I wasn't born when that came out, or like it was the same year I, I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it it's it, it hits me in a, in a very as in a very personal way, which is why that's kind of the premise of this podcast in some ways is to pick a movie that hit that that you have a personal connection or you feel passionate about. And I can't think of something. I mean, other analogs or other maybe or similar ones would be maybe the, the Tim Burton Batman or um, I don't know, Back to the Future, maybe some of those other ones. And again, and we should mention that because I ran to you over the phone and kind of just last week or whatever, when we were talking about doing this episode. Robert Zemeckis' filmography from Back to the Future to Forrest Gump, Back to the Future 1, 2, 3, this movie, Death Becomes Her, uh, and Forrest Gump, I think, are the movies. And those are all, like, seminal movies for, for me and for my, like, that's, four of those are among my my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. So he was just right in, in my, he was, like, my jam in, in the late 80s to, uh, the mid-80s to mid-90s. Even more so than someone, because a lot of people who are a little bit older than I, Might might say that Steven Spielberg was their favorite filmmaker growing up because of you know the Indiana Jones movies and Jaws or whatever. But I don't really I think really the only Steven Spielberg movie I grew up with in that same way was Jurassic Park. I didn't really watch like Indiana Jones that much. I watched them, but it wasn't like my you know I wasn't like obsessed with it like a lot of kids were. Um, But Robert Zemeckis was like my dude I guess in that in that era, and I I think part of that is. Uh, just because, I'm, I, well, I think Back to the Future is a, is a perfect movie. I think this is pretty much a perfect movie. And um, I th- he also is really renowned for pushing the technology. I mean, he did later on in the 2000s, he really focused on motion capture with Polar Express and uh, Beowulf and The Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey and really yeah. kind of focusing on that. And here, this movie won three Oscars, and, and I don't know if that even includes the special Oscar that it got for special achievement for, for what it did with the live action right. and the animation. So it's. um, I think that's that's part of it that he he manages to to find a really solid script, amazing actors, and do something that's never been done before on film. You know.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh,
0: I have some other thoughts that I wanted to make sure I I touched on. So we talked about Toontown and how it creates a new world uh, with that. So what? How do you feel watching it now about the Toontown sequence going into Toontown and how do you do? have you? First of all, you probably haven't seen it, but there is on the on the uh, DVD. There's two discs in the DVD set that I have. I didn't. I gave you one, and I had the other one, and I think it's on the one that I have, where you can you can see like highlights of that sequence, where it's literally just. Bob Hoskins in front of a blue screen, just reacting to stuff, like grabbing his hat like this and like, oh no, uh, like, you know, uh, I, I really, that is, is a very surreal sequence. The whole Le- uh, Lena hyena thing, which still kind of freaks me out. Um, and just having him embody that space, I, I still haven't, I mean, we, granted we, you know, if something like Avengers end game, it's like, it's basically actors standing on a green screen with all made up stuff around them. But having it be entering a cartoon world like that, I still don't think I've ever seen something like that captured on film before. There's
1: never been anything like this. Still, nothing as well-made as this movie. Really.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and even, I was going to mention too, that it, it taps into not only, we talked about uh, old Hollywood and uh, animation and like all the histories regarding all of those things and being era-specific to the 1940s, but it also, it's basically a film noir, it's basically a noir movie. It's like an old detective movie, like ah. Uh. Then this <laughs> dame walked into my like you know, the with Jessica Rabbit being the femme fatale, right? And it's a murder mystery, and he's got a you know, he's, he's a heavy drinker in this movie, and it's like all the like tropes of like a James Cagney movie. Only there happen to be cartoon characters involved. <laughs> so it's basically like a starter film for any younger people that you're trying to get into noir cinema and like that that Comfrey Bogart and, and that kind of thing the Philip Marlowe movies and things like that
1: yeah they stayed true to the 40s and even when um, he was going to get paid what $100 and I'm like yeah half an hour yeah. $100 in the 40s was a lot of money yeah oh yeah yeah
0: 1947 that was a decent paycheck and um a lot of the, even now though watching it like the noir stuff works Eddie's story works and I just want to take a moment there to mention how much I love Alan Silvestri's score again he did Back to the Future he did Forrest Gump he did a lot of Zemeckis movies and I love all those scores I own those scores yeah. including Roger Rabbit uh, and I think the real highlight for it is um, the real like showcase for the score is that scene where you they mentioned early in the movie. Uh, Dolores is the people are like what's uh, Angelo's like what what's wrong with him and it's like oh Toon killed his brother and that's the first hint you get at his backstory oh. and then he goes back to the, his uh, office yeah. and he passes out and like he drinks himself to sleep basically
1: looking and at then, the pictures yes it's
0: and it's such a beautiful scene the music na, 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 na. I'm going to get emotional just listening to the music and looking uh, at his
1: desk and, and his, you on the other side yeah, yeah. of his desk it's, it's empty he's is he gone but he left exactly. everything the way it was
0: and then just like silently everything they say in you know screenwriting 101 is show don't tell and that that sequence he's passed out so you see that he lives this lonely life he's got a girlfriend but he's kind of not really treating her right uh, they mentioned they went on a trip to Catalina and that was when they're happy and he's looking at the pictures and stuff. So you you get like a, a, an image of what Eddie Valiant was like when his brother was there before he, he really kind of lost himself to alcoholism yeah. and depression. And uh, alcoholism, I think I said alcohol, alcoholism? <laughs> alcoholism. And uh, just without even a, a line of dialogue, you see him looking at the pictures, you see him drinking and he like falls asleep. And then it just kind of pans over newspaper clippings of you know the valiant brothers and the detective agency saves goofy they they exonerated donald duck or whatever and like all these cases where they were were like championing tunes and how he's now come to change his attitude towards tunes because of what happened to his brother right and um you know you get his whole life history in that like two or three minute sequence just with alan Silvestri's score carrying it along and his music is so perfect in this film and it's it captures that old that film noir style. It feels like something from old Hollywood. Yeah. It has a certain like uh, you know uh, whimsicalness, uh, whimsical nature to it when it needs to. When he's in Toontown, when he's when it's Roger Rabbit doing the uh, you know two bits and all that stuff. Like all the music in it is yeah. is outstanding. Yeah. And and I noticed even more this time how uh, how important it is in this film to to really set the tone of uh, of how this this movie really. Jumbles together a bunch of different genres. Even now, as as a thirty five year old, I don't really like. I understand that it needs to be there so that we understand what Judge Doom's motivation is. But like, I don't really care about the clover leaf and the red car and all that, which is all based in fact. That was all kind of real stuff that happened. That companies would buy the, the the public the mass transit so they could shut it down, so they could buy vehicles and all that. So like that was all legit stuff that happened. Right, right. So again, it's based in in reality. So it's it takes the reality of nineteen forty seven where with the with cinema, which was all about detectives and from fatals, and like the guy, like, oh, I don't know, take this case, I'll take some dirty pictures, like all that kind of yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah,
0: like, oh, I don't know, this rabbit killed a guy, well, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And what was happening in animation at the time, and what was happening in real life, like capitalist America at the right. time, and just augments, like it uses that as a foundation and then builds off of that with the other layers, with the cartoon characters and everything. So that's part of why I think it feels so grounded is that it is based in fact and then just, you know, um, expanded on from there.
1: Good observation. I didn't even think about that.
0: So, yeah. So the Cloverleaf stuff, I'm just like,
1: eh, okay.
0: It's all corporate bullshit. I don't really care. I'm more invested in uh, in Eddie's thing, Eddie's story and, and Roger's story, obviously. And um, it's always, it's, it's, you know it's relevant it's relevant to have that there because you need it again it, it makes the world world feel more real but if you're even if you're a kid because i didn't really pay much attention to all that stuff with the rail he brought up the red car or this guy even the beginning of the movie the uh, the guy in the bar eddie's like what happened to him he's like laid off I was like what the heck what's happening like they're they're already establishing the status quo of what's happening in L. In a in the Hollywood 1947 and according to the movie just with that first scene when he enters the bar uh-huh. right. uh, and then there's like the room in the back that used to be for a prohibition and like a speakeasy so like all of that stuff it it feels it makes it, it it makes it easier for you to buy the fact that there are cartoon characters running around when it feels like they live in the world that as it was in 1947 so I, I really appreciated the the elements of the storytelling in there that That you know, even if you strip away the cartoon characters and say it's not a a cartoon rabbit that is accused of murder, it's just like some dude. It would still work as a movie. Like everything else would still work. Yeah. Just replace tunes with, you know, a different group, a different group of people, or whatever, and it would still work as a film. But there, I I, you know, so I really love that. So, um, I also another things I wanted to mention here. So, Roger Rabbit in this movie. I I still really I really love him and I think it, you, it establishes uh, the emotional core of the character when you see him in that early scene in, in uh, R.K. Maroon's office where he's looking at the pictures and he freaks out and then uh, and then of course you know he he drinks the the alcohol and loses his shit and like jumps out the window all that stuff. Uh, which I love. And every time I see him jump out of that window, I remember us going to like MGM Studios where they used to have like kind of a the back lot area that had a lot of like it had a canister of dip, I think. And it had yeah. like the the, uh, the, the window out with him the window. cut out. With, right. Yeah. And I, you know, that I loved all that. that that's part yeah. of, as I said, this was a huge, huge movie for my, my childhood. That's In fact, it. the fact that I have it on DVD, I've been as because we knew I knew we were going to do this. And I was like, man. It's a great movie. And they're like, how much is the Blu-ray? Do I want to upgrade to Blu-ray? And it's, like, it's like $6. So I might actually just buy it on Blu-ray just to upgrade um, on Amazon. So uh, things like that. I, I I could see a different version of this character that could be read as really obnoxious. Uh, Eddie Valiant kind of finds him that way initially. Do you? What do you think separates Roger Rabbit in this movie from someone like Jar Jar Binks, where he's also loud and and boisterous, but like kind of grating. Like, What do you you think is the the difference? Why is Roger Rabbit endearing, whereas Jar Jar Binks, he's like, you can only take too much, and then you're like, okay, he needs to go away.
1: Okay, so you know in the bar when he's entertaining those guys, they're all sitting at the bar and he's making them all laugh and Mm -hmm. everything. He knows, he has faith in those people that they're not gonna tell Judge Doom that he's in the back room. They know he's in the back room. And Judge Doom is kind of like interrogating all of them and say, where is he? Do you know where he is? Where's the rabbit? And he and everybody, nobody told on him. Nobody even he's in the back.
0: Not even Angelo.
1: Not even Angelo.
0: <laughs> and I was about to check on the I'm going to check on the, that movie because I know that that's a real Harvey is a real movie. So I want to see when that came out because it probably get 1950. All right. They're kind of they're kind of fudging it a little bit there but that was the movie with uh, with Jimmy Stewart where it was about uh, the like the invisible rabbit yeah. or whatever. So that was obviously a rabbit. So they f- they fudged it a little bit there.
1: But the whole thing is that he he has faith in people. He has yeah. faith in in he has goodness in him. and that people are generally good and that he think, you know, his view of the world is beautiful. Right. And that's what makes him endearing to me.
0: Yeah. That he's he just his his big flaw is that he like he he in a way and maybe this is part of why you and I relate to this character in this movie so much in a way his big flaw is that he cares too much yeah you know what I mean yeah like he loves Jessica so much that he like he's like gets you know all emotional and then in a you know um you think, you know, you were supposed to kind of read his freak out there in, in Maroon's office that he's going to go and kill a guy.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but then he ends up going back to her room and writing her a love letter. Yeah. Because he's like, he knows that, they, you know, he trusts his wife. He knows that she wouldn't, that she's a victim in this whole circumstance or whatever, and that she wasn't really two-timing him. So he, he loves his wife so much. He he cares about people and about bringing joy to people. And, like, in a way, he's just he sees himself as in a strange way kind of a civil servant that like my job is to make people laugh that's what i need to do he's like i can't help it yeah i'm wanted for murder and that's not good but i can't i see i look around and i see how depressed these people are this guy got laid off this one's like a drunk whatever it's like i i can't not help it's like captain america when he's like in civil war in civil war and i tend to reference marvel movies a lot on this podcast just because end game is still in my head for you know all these months um But what he says in there is, you know, where they're talking about the the Accords and Iron Man and Captain America are kind of at, at odds about that. And he's like, you know, sometimes I wish I could just stand by and do nothing. If I see somebody in trouble, I have to act. And then Iron Man's like, no, you don't. He's like, no, I don't. (laughs) That's that's integral to who he is, and it's part of why that makes Captain America so endearing. And Roger Rabbit's the same kind of way. Like he feels like he has to, he can't stand by and let people be miserable when he knows that he can smash a bunch of dishes on his head and make them laugh and cheer them up, even for that small period of time. And that's why he, you know, even you can see him uh, appreciating that same quality in someone like Goofy when they're yeah. at the movies, yeah. and that's another reason too. Like I, I think uh, I, rea- I react to that kind of uh, that kind of a uh, escapism versus real world thing because a lot of times kinda I will be talking about real world stuff like money things or bills or whatever, and I'll be like, "Oh, look, Avengers is this close to beating Avatar," and it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like. Um, in the movie, he's watching the the Goofy cartoon. He's like, "Oh, Goofy, what a joke finesse! What a genius!" And then it cuts to he's like, "Oh, it's another cartoon." He's like, "Oh, another stupid news reel." I'm like, "Yeah, right." <laughs> with that shit, more cartoons. We don't we don't, we don't need all of that. Uh, especially now, you know. Not to get into that, but especially nowadays, politically, everything, no matter what side you're on, everything's just super toxic and everybody's super hateful. And it's like, ugh, it's just you gotta unplug from some of that every once in a while. Yeah. Otherwise, it'll freaking drive you nuts. You need to just put on uh, what is that? Mary, go merry-go-round broken down. The song that he plays <laughs> yeah. in the in the record. Um, I think I think, and that's his that's his function. That's that's why he exists. And I, I think you're right. I think when he gives, we get that little insight into what makes him tick. I think that makes all the difference in the world. He's not just a a you know a doofus kind of falling into stuff. There's a there's a beating heart behind that, and that really motivates him. Everything he does is motivated by protecting his wife. You know, clearing his name, making these people laugh. He gets himself into trouble a lot with that. But it, it is you know, geez, now I need to watch this again. I just <laughs> watched it recently, obviously for this podcast, because it, it's. This is basically, yeah, I would kind of almost basically consider this a perfect movie. Like, there's nothing I would really change. Even the fact that it's kind of risque, I like that. Because it it makes it feel, again, makes it feel more real. This was super sanitized. And nobody was smoking and nobody was drinking alcohol and nobody cursed or whatever. It would be like, okay, well, this is, not, this is not the real world. What is this? It needs to feel a little dirty, a little dingy in order to contrast with Toontown where everything's so bright and happy and like there's like singing birds come greeting you when you drive <laughs> through that tunnel. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I love all that stuff. I loved um, the uh, uh, Benny, Benny the Cab. I love him. Yeah. And Charles Fleischer, I think, does the voice of him as well. Uh, it, that whole sequence with them in the in the car and chased with, by the weasels, that's still, I like, even if I was like on the computer while I'm watching it, that's the part where I'm like, all right, hold on, I got to watch this part because this is, <laughs> that's like the, one of the big action sequences <clears throat> yeah. in this movie and the fact that they pull it off and if you watch the behind the scenes footage, it's basically Bob Hoskins in like a shell of a car. It's not even like the full car because they add all that in and obviously right. in post-production when they add the animation and it, it's it's so much fun just to watch that and um yeah, I love I love all that stuff. This is basically just me like gushing about the movie for an hour. But uh, so I already mentioned the tunnel to Toontown and how I always like wanted to find that. I'm like I want to go. Like it puts you in. It puts you even though uh, Eddie's obviously been to Toontown before and he's in, interacted with a lot of the characters like in that way. He still kind of serves as an audience surrogate in that way because you you. you basically go through that tunnel in and it kind of it alternates between a, a close-up on him and a POV shot of you going through. So it's literally the movies pulling you into Toontown through Eddie's car. Right.
1: Um,
0: and, and so I, I love that. It's like him rediscovering it and us discovering it for the, for the first time uh, the entrance to Toontown and then how everything changes in an instant as soon as you get on the other side of that bridge. Um, so I, I love that. Uh, let's see. I, ha- I have notes and it's just kind of all over the place. Um, I already wrote about this about the score uh, all the, the the setup in this movie uh, it's so much so many of the films that really work to me as as uh, pieces of writing I think work because everything is set up early in the film and then paid off so even the thing with the way he reacts to the shot of liquor early on and plays in later the uh, dip plays in later there, there's even seen uh, there, there's little like subtle more subtle things that you could you can miss where I didn't even notice this the first several times but you see Judge Doom when they're in the warehouse the big like third act sequel because the whole third act is in the warehouse right. where Roger and Jessica are strung up and they're going to be right. you know dipped and uh, Eddie is kind of trying to figure a way out of there and, and it's a becoming kind of a cartoon character himself which we would have, totally would have died if he'd really thrown bowling balls in his head but let's whatever It's <laughs> this movie operates in cartoon logic at times which is fine Um but like uh, Judge Doom slips on the the eyes and then has a hand over his eye because right. he's wearing fake eyes, uh-huh. but you don't realize that until a few minutes like later in the film. Right. Um, and if you watch Christopher Lloyd throughout the movie, whenever he doesn't have his sunglasses on, he never blinks because those are fake eyes that are put in there, like oh, little that's subtle right. details like that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, the fact that he's basically wearing a rubber mask and he's just like, it's all a facade that he right. that he's uh, that he's wearing. So it, little things like that, like it's just... So the attention to detail is really strong there. Uh, I really love to talk about Judge Doom again. I really love his introduction scene. We already mentioned with the shoe and it makes you right off the gate be super scared of this dude. Right. Uh, and Christopher Lloyd ha- has the right... He has the right skill set to go from being legitimately menacing... To really cartoony and kind of silly and ridiculous, or playing in with the comedy, like even little things, like when they're at the bar and he catches Roger with the shave and the haircut, that trick, yeah. Uh, And he catches him there, and and, uh, Eddie's saying about, oh, you know, doesn't he get a last request? And with again the the shot, and uh, he's like, I don't want the, you know, I I don't want it. And it's like he doesn't want the drink, like the way the way Christopher Lloyd like locks into like. Judge Doom almost becomes part of the bit in that yeah, scene, like, and yeah. Christopher Lloyd has such a such a, an ability to go from like deathly serious to like leaning into the the kind of uh, wry humor of a scene. And this was also in the era where he was basically he was honestly one of my favorite actors in the eighties and early nineties. Yeah, between this, the between Back to the Future again with Zemeckis, between Adams Family, like, and he does not look at, at he's like completely. Unrecognizable in all of those movies. Like you, if you didn't tell me that Uncle Fester and Judge Doom and Doc Brown were the same person, I would have never believed it. Right. Uh, and those are again like three of my favorite fictional characters. Yeah. Of all. Like I love his version. He's an of an Amazing all of them.
1: character actor.
0: Incredible, incredible that he he how what he did just in those three roles, and then if you add in you know Taxi and all these other things that he he's done in addition to that all the voice work that he's done and like every animated movie or show he's shown up at some point. Right. Uh, he was Rasputin and Anastasia and like a lot of other things. He's just, he's, he's so good in this movie. And I think other than Bob Hoskins, he's the other actor that deserves the most amount of credit because he has to do picking up an imaginary rabbit and hold it there and, right. and uh, make it believable that, that judge doom is really kind of an act like he's in, he's in, he's the dude playing the dude disguised as another dude, basically. Yeah. yeah. He's this, this, we don't really know he's a hundred percent the Toon version of him, what that real, what his real name is. So we just call him Doom, I guess. But he's like Toon Doom, mascar- he's like Christopher Lloyd playing Toon Doom disguised as as a human. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you can see moments with a little, where that facade starts to slip a little bit, where his like stoic. Uh, Things starts to fall by the wayside when he's talking to the weasels and he's like, you're not careful, you'll end up just like your idiot hyena cousins. Like he kind of almost gets to that level and then gets really off the rails afterwards when that comes off. So what did you think of, you know, seeing this for the first time, I guess, and it's kind of uh, in the years since, because you, like me, have seen this movie about 100,000 times. Uh What did you think of all the twists? Because there's a lot of twists in this movie regarding, um, well, regarding... R.K. Maroon and his, his involvement in blackmailing, uh, blackmailing, I forget the whole thing. He's got, he's, he's basically involved in a blackmail scheme to get his hands on Toontown. Everybody's, like, grappling to get, it's like a real estate scheme. Is what's going on behind yeah. the scenes, basically. No, it is. It really and, um, me le- makes, something to make, uh, Lex Luthor proud. Because this whole thing in Superman it was like, <laughs> oh, I call it, you know, I forget. Le- Costa de Lex. That's what I think it was. And, um. That twist, then there's the twist with uh, Judge Judge Doom being the real one behind it. Mm-hmm. Then the twist that he's a tune. Then the twist that he's the tune that killed Eddie's brother. So it really, t- it's one of those things like uh, it makes me think of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I, I even Restoring Sister Kai recently. I, this is another movie I need to talk about on the podcast at some point, where Robert Downey Jr. is on the phone and he's working on a case, even though he's an actor and not really a detective. And Val Kilmer is working on a case and he's like calls him on the phone. And he's like. He's like, guess what? Your case and my case are the same fucking case. It's like that kind of thing where it's a classic detective story where his his unsolved baggage and emotional uh, weight of never finding his brother's killer and this case that he's working on with Roger Rabbit are literally are the same case. It's the uh-huh. same dude behind it. And the way that that comes together is so satisfying because you really feel Eddie's angst and you feel the weight of his, his loss and there's enough... There's, there's scenes in here where you can tell that he's he doesn't want to be involved in Roger's stuff, but he's also sympathetic. Like when their weasels are knocking at the door, and, and Roger's like, what are we gonna do, Eddy? What are we gonna do? And he's like, you could see he like learns, took turns away from Roger, and you could see like him like literally grappling, like, crap, what am I gonna do? I can't let them take this guy. And yeah. like, yeah, I don't want to be a part of this, but I am a part of this now, so yeah. what do I do? Um and then he turns back and kind of turns it off. He's like, What's all this wee stuff? They're just looking for the rabbit that whole thing like he he, he toes that line between showing that he cares and then also pretending that he doesn't care really really well and yeah. i and I, it's it's an amazing performance but i mean we keep going back to that but bob hoskins is, is is really kind of the mvp of this whole movie oh yeah he was nominated for a golden globe at least i, I found that out in my oh, research really? uh the movie was nominated for a musical or a comedy uh that year and I, honestly this is it is probably, I mean, it's gonna sound silly in a lot of ways because you think Oscars and you're like, well, no, that's like Laurence Olivier and like all this, Meryl Streep. And it's like, this is a kind of an Oscar worthy performance. And I say that not lightly. I, I think uh, there are certain movies that actors give such indelible performances and such a high difficulty level. And another one, like, uh, this is gonna, another one that I always think about when I think of Oscar worthy performances that did not get looked at. And you know we mentioned him earlier, but I have him on the brain because of some creative projects I have in the back of my mind. Tim Curry and something like I know it's going to sound crazy in Rocky Horror Picture Show is so good in that movie. He humanizes this ridiculous character, leaning into all kinds of stereotypes. The dance moves, the the his vocals, yeah. everything. He's like pitch perfect in that movie. That that is like to me an Oscar level performance because. This movie doesn't work if that performance doesn't work. Like oh, yeah. all of this, it, it's a weird, it, Rocky Horror is obviously a infamously weird fucking movie. Roger Rabbit is a weird fucking movie. <laughs> and if you don't have the right person in the lead, uh-huh. it doesn't work. It, it, this is going to be, it's going to be garbage. It's yeah. going to be like, uh, you know, people love it now. There's a certain nostalgia for it. And I, kinda, I like it in a way, but it's going to be like Space Jam where that movie is fun, but it's not. That's a, kind of a messy, all-over-the-place movie. Michael Jordan sucks in that movie. He's just looking like, you want me? Come and get it. Blank expression. <laughs> and they tried to do an Oscar campaign of him and everything. I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> he sucks in that movie. If There's a really long video uh, that I, I can't remember who does it. I should find it and link it in the show notes or something since I'm referencing it. But there's a really good YouTube video where they're... Where they're uh, the, they're breaking down Space Jam and how the logic in that movie is no, non-existent, like it makes no sense, it's like, so they live in the cartoon because the kids are watching the cartoon and then they walk away, while you're watching the cartoon to go to like a meeting, but then they're also in the center of the earth sort of, it's like, are they in another dimension are they in our world, like none, none of it makes any sense whatsoever, the complete opposite of the way that this movie is built on uh, is built, and yeah so, okay uh, I. Bob Hoskins, easily MVP. But before we start winding down, I have to mention Kathleen Turner, who hasn't come up yet. Uh, Joanna Cassidy is also great. She, you know, she actually lends a lot of depth to, to what it could have just been a supportive girlfriend role. I think she she asserts herself really well in these scenes where she doesn't feel like she's, like, you know, fawning all over Eddie. She's like, oh, she's actually kind of more of a hard-ass she's, than he is in a lot a of strong ways. strong woman. Yeah, she is a strong woman. And I think that's... That's a good. That's good for a role that could have just been like Jennifer in the Back to the Future movies, where she's like, "Oh Marty, what are we doing now?" <laughs> uh, fainting and yeah. stuff. You know what I mean? That's. Yeah. I love those movies, but Jennifer is not the strongest character. Uh, I feel like Dolores is actually a better version of that kind of thing. But Kathleen Turner as the uncredited. She's not even credited in the movie because she worked with Zemeckis in *Romancing the Stone* already. So she's perfect voice casting here, and I think brings a lot to my, why Jessica Rabbit. Was such a made such an impression on me. In addition, in addition to you know her her, her body type yeah. and how yeah. she's not she's not bad. She's just drawn that way. All that stuff. Oh, I love genius. that. That's a genius line. Yeah, um, that was
1: a great line. There's
0: so much there's so much uh, intelligence in the writing here, and for something that could have just been a technological achievement, I feel like in a lot of ways it's also a storytelling achievement. Uh, I think you could say the same thing about about Back to the Future or about Star Wars. Like there's something special about the original Star Wars in the way that it takes the classic hero's journey from Joseph Campbell and all that stuff uh, and brings in influences that George Lucas had, because we've been talking about Star Wars every uh, every month. I'm talking about a new, different Star Wars movie uh, on the podcast. So that's also in my head. I mean, Star Wars is always in my head, but still. Um, but it, it this is a technological achievement, but it it in a lot of ways balances story elements in a way that I think is, is kind of unpre- unprecedented. And it's you know, I still haven't seen anything that comes near this. So one of my favorite movies and, uh, you know, there maybe there's a, the only kind of plot hole that I really noticed is that they make the whole big deal about the dip and how, uh, and how you know, oh, we thought there wasn't a way to kill a tune. And by the way, that guy is in the original Star Wars. The cop lieutenant, whatever, is one of the the uh, the governors or whatever in on the Death Star it's like don't try and you know intimidate us with your you know your oh, sorcerer's really? ways Lord Vader <laughs> that guy that's him yeah um so he's been in you know I, he he connects those two movies but the fact that he's like oh we know how we thought there was never a way to, to kill a tune well Doom found a way and it's basically those three turpentine acetone whatever and benzene those are all paint thinners so the idea is that it it like basically melts away melts the them. the paint yeah. and the what they're you know yeah. I don't know if we're ever gonna get kind of a I, I, I would love to see – well, we'll get to that in a second. I would love to see an expansion on that concept. Like how do you just draw something and then it comes to life? You haven't seen Toy Story 4 yet, but it kind of deals with that question a little bit of like, oh, how do these – when do these toys become sentient actually? Because there's a toy that's made in the beginning of that movie, Forky, that's made by a little girl and then it comes to life and his whole thing is – I shouldn't be alive. Why am I here? I'm trash. What is this about? You know what I mean? So it's really kind of existential in that way. So I would almost be curious to see the Roger Rabbit world kind of delve into that a little bit. But the only plot hole that I really found is that there's apparently dip is the only way to kill a tune. but also the weasels are dying kind of by laughing, but they turn into cartoon ghosts. It's like that part. It's like at that point, Eddie Valiant is running around doing crazy stuff. And it's like, okay, that's fine. Whatever. the movie is doing everything. It's the movie's like doing Ninety, you know, if you're doing ninety percent, ninety five percent of the work and everything perfectly, it's like, yeah, all right, sure. It's like, well, yeah, yeah I'll give you a freebie if you're if you're, if you're, if you're taking a. <laughs> if you're die laughing. A, you know? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess then they're the only tunes that die laughing. Everybody else needs the dip, I guess. But it's okay. I whatever. Um, and then the ghost weasel, the little like crazy one. <laughs> that guy is like floating up and then hits the lever on his way. So they're ghosts, but they can still touch. They're still corporeal in that way Uh. i don't know whatever that's just me getting hung up on on the details it's just one thing that i just noticed and i was like okay i mean sure whatever i like it it's funny it's a funny idea the hyena cousins and all that um so that was cool so one other thing that i wanted so they have been talking about forever and i don't think it's going to ever happen and i kind of don't know if i really want it to happen but they've been talking forever about possibly doing a sequel to roger rabbit to this movie would you even want them that to happen with Uh, with Robert Zemeckis involved or not or whatever because Disney right now is like you hear these rumors about them doing a live action Nightmare Before Christmas and that's another movie that I love that's like don't you dare you can do Aladdin, whatever, yeah, Lion King, okay, whatever. Because, But don't t- don't mess with perfection. They already are anyway. So would you even want them to see them do an updated version of this or bring in different styles of animation, like a different era? Or should they just leave it alone? Because I, I, I don't know if they're going to leave anything alone at this point, honestly. I,
1: I would like them to leave it alone. I This is perfection. I don't think they need to do another one. Well, I don't think they, they need to, to do an updated version. I don't think they... A remake is going to do it, and I can't see a sequel happening either. Especially, with, I
0: mean, without Bob Hoskins either. Yeah, at this he's point, not it's even like, around anymore. Right. So, well, it's also well, I would, I would to play Devil's Advocate, I agree with you, and I like the fact that Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, the writers of Back to the Future, have been staunch in like every few years. and be like, Back to the Future Four is it happening? And it was like, No, no, it's not fucking happening. Not in my lifetime. It's not happening. We ended it. That's the end. That's why it says the end at the end of the third one. We didn't right. want there to be any others. We like that that trilogy to us is is exactly what we wanted. We made our vision. That's it. This is not going to be like Star Wars, where they're going to continue it on forever. And as much as I love those movies, I'm glad that that's the case because I would, you know, Michael J. Fox has, you know, he's dealing with Parkinson's. He's much older now. He's in his fifties. Christopher Lloyd is hanging on there. Uh, and, you know, everybody else is kind of still around. You know, all the, all the cast is basically still around. Crispin Glover, who'd never come back anyway. We um, had Thompson and, and everybody's still there, but, I don't. You know, why? It's it's done. I, it's it's a perfect as it is. You know why? Why mess with that? However, to play a devil's advocate, I would say the same thing about Mary Poppins. That to me is another basically perfect movie. I rewatched it again with you know with uh, with my daughter uh, a couple weeks ago in segments because she's you know she's two so we can't sit through a two and a half hour movie with her so we break it in like half hour segments every day when we are like let's watch a little more Mary Poppins and that's basically a perfect movie. And did they come anywhere near that with the new one? Not really, but it, it's it's decent, it's good, it's enjoyable. I mean, you know, she loves it and everything. So what about something like that, like bringing it into a, a different time? I guess now they would be like, I guess, see, now it feel, would feel cheap. These characters are classic in a certain way. If they did it now and they brought it into like the age of CG and maybe like Roger feeling outdated, because what, it would be like Buzz and Woody, like interacting with Shrek? Like, what would they do? Like, I don't want to see that.
1: I, yeah, I can't that. doesn't sound appealing happened. to me at all. Yeah. It's like groundbreaking it's, what it's, they did, and if they bring another movie and it's, it's yeah. not going to be the same. There's
0: a certain timelessness to characters like Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse that I don't know. I mean, Buzz and Woody, yeah, but I don't know if a lot of the current, like, more recent characters would even really come near that. And that's the only way I can see the uh, kind of a, a reboot or whatever you want to call it uh, working is if they brought it into a different era of animation. But I don't, I don't know. I don't really want it. I'm good. I'm good as is. I'm just going to get my Blu-ray copy of Roger Rabbit and that'll be the end of it. So any final thoughts on the movie? Did I not talk about something that you wanted to talk about? I tried to hit as no, much. I tried to be very, pretty comprehensive and also yeah. get into my personal side of it. Uh, I had the bed sheets. I didn't mention that. Yeah. I had the bed sheets. I had the <laughs> figures. Uh, what else did I have? I had a lot of the merchandise for it. I had all kinds of stuff. I know. Um,
1: it was your favorite. It's still is you know, always I my being one here. of my favorites because you grew up with it and it was something that we shared when yeah. uh, you and were Yeah. And we little, both still love it. And we still love it. Yeah.
0: Did yeah. I watch it with yeah, it? No, you or did you watch it? Yeah, no, he watched it with me. I remember when he I let, says, you, I remember when I let you when I let <laughs> you borrow it and, and you were like, "Oh, we'll watch Cuz I let you borrow that in Captain Marvel and you're like, yeah. "Oh, we'll watch Captain Marvel tomorrow and then I'll watch this the next day." And he was like, "Hey, I want to watch. It. I like Roger Rabbit." <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so any final thoughts on people that are listening? to this? Go watch Roger Rabbit if, again. I guess is our final thought. Yeah, it's great. You it's, have to see it. It's, if you it's haven't seen
1: it, you must see it. It's
0: 2019. It's it's 30 it just past its 31st anniversary, and and it's basically it's basically one of the, I I think one of the, I mean it's my one of my favorite movies in general. But it's it's it, it, it's in a category of it in and of itself. I think if you've you've seen things like Space Jam or whatever movies like that, and you're like, huh. What if this was good? This is what it looks like. So check this out, and uh, it's let me let me know what you think of it, and and uh, you know on Twitter at Crooked Table. You'll hear that in a minute in the outro. But anything else? And thank you for coming back on the the Crooked Table podcast to talk about this movie. And this was again a really important one for me to cover. And it, honestly, I'm glad that I got to cover it. As my choice, so I got to just be like, you. You're more like listening and reacting to me being like, "This is so great, I love it so much." <laughs> uh, because if I had a guest on, I would have be like, "So, what did you think of this movie?" Um, so, so um, you know, and that's funny because uh, somebody that's actually going to be on the podcast, this was actually their. Their first choice then their first round it was like, "Yeah, I already got that one covered. <laughs> it's already been claimed. We'll have to talk about something else." So we'll, yeah. it remains to be seen which she's going to choose. But but yeah, thanks, mom, for coming on the show and talking Thank about you Roger for Rabbit. Me. And it's, I
1: enjoyed talking about Roger Rabbit, and it's near and dear to my heart because of you.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's one of our yeah, it's one of our family favorites. So um, now that you've been on the show twice. Maybe you'll be less nervous for the third time <laughs> if eventually you want to talk about something else. And you know what? I really like, I don't know, we already mentioned Mary Poppins or something like that. Something that you grew up with that I also love. Maybe we could do that. Kind of like this, but flipped where it's actually your choice. Who knows? We'll see. We'll keep it in mind. So okay. So stay tuned for that eventually down the line. And uh, definitely go back and listen to our White Christmas episode. That was a lot of fun. And it was your podcast debut. I yeah. You, were, you could, I think you seemed a lot more comfortable here than last time, I think. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, I never did it before. I know. It's if- yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and this is this is an easy one to talk about. Mm-hmm. A lot to say. So that uh, that'll be the end of the Crooked Table podcast this week. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com/guest, or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com/crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob.
1: This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved.
0: okay <laughs>